Well, good morning. Um, it is such a pleasure and a privilege to be with you today. My name is Deanna Ritchie. Um, when Linda contacted me, Linda Harrison uh, sent me an email. Actually, uh, my name, um, I, her email was passed to me from a friend from our church who had been asked to speak. And due to a conflict of her schedule, she couldn't be with you today. And so she said, Deanna, is this something you would do? I don't generally look for opportunities to speak. It's not that I'm not willing to. It's just life is busy, and, and it's a lot of work sometimes, and, and it's very nerve-wracking, as you can imagine. And, and I think, oh, well, they understand. I mean, what are they going to think of what I have to say? God, what would you have me say? It's just a lot of uh, soul-searching work. But I, uh, I have a policy in my life. A few years ago, I, I told God, I said, God... You, um, you have the rights to my agenda. I don't have an agenda. So I take opportunities that he sends my way very seriously, and I pray about those, and I think, okay, God, you brought this to me. Um, we'll go with it, <laughs> even though it's not the most convenient. And I have to confess to you, um, the topic of Choose Joy um, is a wonderful topic. It's such an important thing, especially for us as ladies, especially if you're a mom because you've got little kids watching you, and you can uh, do so much into your home when we have this attitude of joy, but it doesn't come easy. And, and it's something that we should talk about. The Bible has much to say about it. In fact, we could do uh, a whole series for a year probably on this topic and the things that the Bible has to say about it. But we don't have that much time. I have an hour and I'll try it. I don't see a clock in the back, which is terrifying. <laughs> so I hope you'll wave at me. Give me a 10-minute warning, like if I'm getting close, <laughs> and then we'll hurry. Um, but with that, you know, I, uh, I confess to a friend. I have a, a mentor that I meet with. She's a peer mentor, uh, another pastor's wife, and it's something I just started. I had a mentor for my, my work, and I'll tell you about that in a second. And I have a, uh, a peer mentor group that I meet with that works in a mission uh, setting. But my pastor's wife, peer mentor, we met together, and I said, you know, I've got to go do this ladies' thing. And, and a place called Kerrang, which, no, no offense, I've never heard of Kerrang. <laughs> um, I'm down in, in the western suburbs of Melbourne, and, and you can probably tell I'm not originally from there either. And, uh, and so I know Melbourne a bit, but um, as soon as I told uh, some of my coworkers where I was going, they're like, oh, um, we're from that area, from, you know, the country and stuff. Like Mal and Jenny Watts, I don't know if anybody of you... Yeah, okay. Mal's my boss now. Um, but with that, they said, oh, you'll love it. It's a wonderful place. They do wonderful conferences and things at Kerrang Baptist. And so uh, I had his blessing to come up here. Um, but my, my friend said, I said, you know, I, the, this is the topic, choose joy. And I said, I haven't been feeling very joyful lately. And I said, how am I going to get up in front of those ladies? No, I'm going to feel like such a hypocrite. <laughs> But I just, I tell you that because it's confession time. And uh, we don't do that like the Catholics do. We do it, you know, more in front of a big audience or, or to our friends over coffee. <laughs> and, uh, and I just thought, you know, I haven't been feeling very joyful. The reason for that is that it's, uh, it, it's just, I am in the middle of just a really incredibly busy season. And it's, there's lots of pressures and lots of things going on at work and in our family and things like that. So it just uh, made it it's just been distracting. And sometimes it's hard to find joy in those distracting times. But she said, tell them that, because some of them will be in that state too. So I, if you're here today and not feeling very joyful, you're in good company. So you're not alone, at least. At least you've got one other person in the room. Um, but with that, you know, I, I need to confess to you, because when I stand up in front of, or when I actually, when I'm sitting where you're sitting, and somebody's up in front of me, I'm thinking, who is this person, and why should I listen to them, and why do they think they know what they know, and, and all that. And I'm going to make another confession to you. Um, this whole choose joy thing, a lot of times, a lot of Christian cliches get bantered around with 
uh, the idea of joy and just like, you know, punch people in the arm and Jesus is enough. And when somebody dies, we say, you'll see him again in heaven and stuff like that. And when we're in the midst of the pain, do you know what the Bible says about doing that to other people? It says in Proverbs 25:20, singing cheerful songs to a person with a heavy heart is like taking someone's coat in cold weather, good, good example today, or pouring vinegar in a wound. So I want to make a, a promise to you today. I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to just say, buck up. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And I do believe that it will be. But you might be in a heavy season, and I don't want to put added, an added burden on you. But I do want to hopefully inspire you through what God's taken us through and some of the lessons that I've learned that, uh, that have helped me to be able to choose joy. Um, I love Scripture. Uh, the Bible is so full of people that did it tough often, and um, and you would often find you'll find stories in there that says, "Man, I wish I'd never been born. Life is too hard. Just kill me now." And uh, and many things that God, you can't be talking to me because I don't feel equipped to do that. And even you know, Jesus said, you know, prophets um, rejected in his own country. He he was like. He was Jesus, and yet was rejected. Um, so we have a lot of good company in Scripture, the pages of Scripture. There's stuff in there for anything you may be going through, and encouragement to know you're not alone. And my favorite two words in all of Scripture is, but God. You hear all these things painted that it's like things are just absolutely horrible, and, and there's no way out but God. And he steps into those places. So um, that's a little bit about where we're going today and why I'm here. But you probably want to know, who am I? My name is Deanna Ritchie. Um, This uh, photo was taken a few years ago on one of my first overseas trips after life fell apart. And so this was life getting back together. And I'm sorry if you're animal rights people and think that uh, Tiger World in Thailand is terrible. If you've ever been to Thailand, I don't go there anymore. But we had to get the... the, uh, shot of the tiger, but I am a, uh, the personnel director and the director of member care for Sim Australia. I've done that job for two years. Uh, prior to that, I was just a member care specialist. I have a degree in member care. Member care is the uh, uh, psychosocial and spiritual well-being of missionary workers or cross-cultural workers. So my specialty is um, helping the selection process, screening process, and training process of sending missionaries overseas to do hard things in hard places, and to help keep them healthy while they're doing it and help them process their, their journey as it goes along. Because it's very predictable. The world out there is a lot more dangerous than it used to be. And, it's, uh, and we've, lots of research and stuff has gone into member care. And a few years ago, I thought, you know, I really need to know more about why or what I do. So that's what I do. And when my husband stepped down, this is my second job. My husband left SIM. He was the national ministry director, not the national director, but the national ministry director, overseeing all of the work within Australia and the teams across the nation here uh, in mission, as we send missionaries out of every state uh, to, to a whole bunch of different nations around the world. But he was doing that. But in 17, uh, God began working in his heart and calling him back to pastoral ministry. Now, we've been in pastoral ministry for a whole lot of years, um, 25 and counting. And um, I'll tell you a little bit more about my story in that regard in a moment. But this is my secondary job. I'm pastor's wife. Um, in the back, they said, oh, you're a pastor. And it's like, am I? I don't know. That gets bantered around a lot. I'm not on the payroll as a pastor, but I do a whole lot of pastoral care. And, and probably I do a lot of pastoring of missionaries in my other role. Um, a little bit more 
about us. As you know, I'm not from here. In 1998, when my husband finished Bible college, God began directing us. You know, you look, when you, you finish Bible college, you think, well, what is God going to have us to do? And we never dreamed mission. My husband did a theology degree, and uh, then a ministry after that, he had two missions classes. His whole, he did a, a undergrad and two masters, and had two mission classes through all that. So we never planned on mission. He was an IT guy before that. But God began to direct us to this place called Australia. And look, all these years later, I'm still here. Um, but it was because we were told there are no churches in Australia. <laughs> How funny is that? And we can imagine our surprise after two years of support raising, we got here and it's like, oh wait, there's churches here. The funny thing is somebody had given us a Hillsong CD, <laughs> Hillsong Australia, and we listened to it for two years of support raising up and down the east coast of the United States. And you would think that the penny would have dropped, and we were like, hey, there must be something going on over there. <laughs> but it was our organization. It was a denominational organization, and they were quite narrow in their viewpoints. And uh, therefore, we uh, really, yeah, we were, came and had a bit of a surprise in 2001. And then in 2005, we became citizens here in Australia uh, because we didn't want to be kicked out um, if we could help it. And, and so that was a bit of our history. So, so you know why I'm here, what brought us here. We came as church planters. My husband likes to say, we are American by birth, but Australian by the grace of God. And so this is what God's done in our life a little bit. Well, we'll fast forward to today. And this is uh, us um, a couple years ago, but we'll be celebrating our 33rd wedding anniversary in August. And those kids have grown up and married and met and married their own Australian partners my husband's American too, by the way, but that's Garrett, our oldest, and his wife, Candace. Grant, our second, and his wife, Danielle, who comes from Queensland originally. Candace is from Melbourne. Matthew and our daughter, Julia. Julia is here with me today. She's my moral support and, and helped me do the driving and stuff. We like to hang out. And then our youngest daughter, Jill, and her husband, Ben. And I'd like to tell you that they're all tracking with the Lord and stuff like that, but our daughter-in-law, Danielle, doesn't believe God. In fact, she's quite opposed to Christianity, so we pray for her often. And then Matthew, who grew up in a good Christian home, went to a good Christian school, uh, and says he did believe at one time, has decided, you know what, I'm just not sure I believe it anymore. So those are some of the, the, where our family is at the moment. Do you notice anything about that, those dates on those? Uh, we had a wedding every year. <laughs> Actually, four weddings in three and a half years. And if you'd known what we'd gone through before that, you would think, oh my goodness, how are you still standing? But I'll tell you about that in a second. Yes, we, they, uh, I, had, I spaced out my kids over seven years, and yet they all got married one right after the other. <laughs> so, well, we were good at it, and now it's all over. So, um, but the life, life is a journey, isn't it? We go on this journey... And our life journey is often described as peaks and valleys, or peaks and troughs, or hills and valleys, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, we think of the mountains as the, the positive times, the good times, where we worked hard to get there, and we look around, the vista is beautiful, and then we descend down in the valley, and it's dark, and it's scary, and it's cold. Well, I guess it's colder on top of the mountain sometimes, but the valley can be a really challenging place. We think of our valleys as the places that are of challenge. Well, a few years ago, in my work, someone said this. They said, I don't like that concept. We're not either up or down. We're both. We're kind of like a set of railroad tracks. Good and the good stuff and the bad stuff are both there through all of our life. 
and they track right alongside each other. And so it's never ever, it's never, ever either all good or all bad. It's both, and, and we have to choose which one we focus on. And I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense. But I still like that mountain and valley thing because I think there's some biblical stuff that, you know, that would support that as well. Uh, they didn't have trains back in the Bible. Uh, maybe it would have been a train track analogy if they had it, but I prefer this one because that's how my life feels most of the time. <laughs> So, so it's, it's both and. <laughs> so sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down and sometimes it's upside down and there's two tracks running together and we have to make heads or tails of it. And, and life can be quite chaotic. But that's, uh, that's how I like to live. And I'll let that sit there just a minute. And I'll let you know what's gotten me up to this point today. And pardon me, but I love um, narratives. I love stories of people. And, and that's why I, I love a lot of the stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but just, just seeing people's lives. And, and a lot of the work I do is watching or helping people along their journeys as well as they follow God into mission and back. And, and even in the church, just people journeying through this thing that we call life. I grew up and was raised in a really good Christian home in the country. So I'm a country girl at heart. Um, when my husband wanted to go to Bible college, I said, I want to raise my family in the country. And he said, honey, cows don't need Jesus. So he was not a country boy. <laughs> um, but he said, there's more people in the city. And I said, oh, that's a fair point. But, you know, at the end of the day, we go where God wants us to go. But I was raised in the country in, in Indiana, which is the Midwest. And Indiana was a good place to grow up. We grew up every... We were, I was in church. I had two sisters. We were in church every time the doors were open. And to the point of, like, you know, it was, it was pretty intense as I got older. Um, but when I was a young kid at the age of six, I remember being in a Sunday school class. And the uh, teacher had taught about how to become a Christian. And she said, you know, it's, it's as simple as ABC. And I remember this as a six-year-old. She said, A, you have to admit that you're a sinner because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And B, you have to believe that Jesus died for your sins and that God raised him from the dead. And C, you have to um, call. The Bible says, who shall ever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, and I thought, I could do that. You know, six-year-old ABCs, and that made sense to me. And I was so excited to pray that prayer and accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. I was baptized at the age of nine. And, you know, we, during that time, we moved from um, what was a, a really good solid church to a church plant uh, situation. There were some problems in the bigger church, but, um, and I really didn't get a lot of discipleship as a young person, so I became quite rebellious as a teenager. Um, when I was 13 years old, my sister, my older sister, who would call herself the black sheep of the family, she's actually a pastor's wife today, but she ran away from home with her boyfriend it devastated me as the little sister. I was the baby of the family. Of course, you can imagine it was devastating for my mom and dad. What had they done wrong? You know, you raise your kids right, you expect them to turn out okay. And, and this was something that they weren't expecting. Um, what happened in my life, I became quite depressive and suicidal and um, just really self-destructive, a lot of self-destructive behaviors as a young teenager. At 16, a few years later, about the time life had settled out and I was, you know, kind of had worked myself out of that stuff, Um, my parents decided to move us to the state of Florida. Now, think about moving from here and beautiful, maybe even Tasmania, where it's a little bit colder even, up to the Gold Coast, and that was moving from Indiana to Florida for us. And I was devastated. I was a good student, quite a good student, and um, it just really just devastated me. It was the middle of my year 10, 
And I was, uh, I just kind of gave up on everything. It was about that time I met my husband. We were, I was 16, he was 17. We met at an amusement park. We were working at a place called Circus World near Disney World, and it's no longer there. But um, I was just miserable and self-destructive. And my husband was a new Christian. He uh, had grew up in a marginally Christian home, and he had just trusted Christ just shortly before he met me. So he hadn't grown a lot himself, but he did know enough to, to uh, keep me from destroying myself. Our relationship probably wasn't as healthy as it should have been. You can um, fill in the gaps yourself. But the reality is he, uh, he did step in and intervene while I was still being quite self-destructive. He, uh, he said, I'm not going to let you do that to yourself. Long story short, we've been married for 33 years. Uh, I could not wait to finish school and get married. I uh, finished in... May and got married in August. I was 18, and uh, and I'm so I'm so thankful to God that, that our marriage survived the odds because that's usually the odds are against that those young um, impetuous marriages. It was a thing that happened maybe in my parents' era or her, their their parents' era, but uh, not so much in this day and age. But my first thought when I married my I can't wait to get out of home and I'm never going to church again. Never again. I've had enough of church. Didn't work for me. Uh, my life stinks, and, and I'm not going to do that again. My mom, my mom was faithful, and she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. She didn't preach at me. She just prayed. And at 19, I remember thinking, you know what? Something's missing in my life. That thing that I did all the time when I was growing up just wasn't there. And I remember falling on my knees in my bedroom and saying, God, if you're real, we need a mean business. And it was at that time that I started <clears throat> thinking, okay, I know I'd let a lot of things into my life that needed to go. Nobody told me that. I knew. You know, you just kind of know. And so um, I started cleaning up my act and started trying to, to do what it was to follow God. Church for us at that stage was really a social. We were young marrieds, and, and so we went to church for social reasons. And, and so that was just one of the things. So if we felt like going, we'd go. And if we didn't, we didn't. You don't really grow that way. <laughs> But um, we were making efforts. So um, at 20, I was just thinking about maybe starting nursing school because I hadn't, you know, when I finished school, I just wanted to be done with everything. And so I hadn't gone to uni. So I was looking at nursing school, and I fell pregnant with our first son. I was 20. And I was like, oh, I wasn't ready for this. I remember uh, I cried when the pregnancy test turned. It's like, no. Um, and 22 months later, our second son was born, and my life became, became being a, a mom of these kids, working some on the side. But I started to get, we started to get more involved in church because it's like, oh, we need to do this for the kids. That's how I was raised. We must do this for our children. So we started going to church. Um, Stan, during that time, said, uh, I think God wants me to go to Bible college. I'm like, Bible college? Are you kidding me? We're going to church. Isn't that enough? Um, took God two years to get a hold of, I'm quite a stubborn person, two years to get a hold of my heart. And I said, okay, Bible college, we'll do that. That's, uh, um, in that process, God had moved us to a smaller church. We were in a big church where we could hide and uh, we didn't have to do a whole lot. So people wouldn't really notice if we weren't there on a Sunday, but you go into a small church and it was about 30 people. People notice if you're not there. And, uh, it, the church ran a, uh, they asked us to be, if we would be willing to work with teenagers. And I thought, I felt as a teenager so alone and so nobody understood me, nobody was there for me, and maybe I could help other teens to know they're not alone and help them from some of those self-destructive things that happen when life is hard. And so that was my, um, I thought, I can do that. Youth ministry is fun, too. You get to do all these activities in the States. It's activity-loaded, at least it was when we were doing it. 
Um, but this particular church ran a program called Word of Life. Has anybody here ever heard of the Word of Life organization? They, uh, they do mostly uh, Bible college, or well, they do buy some Bible college, but they do mostly church Bible clubs is what it was in the day. And they also um, do a lot of, they're very evangelistic and stuff. But to be a Word of Life teen leader, you had to do a daily quiet time. So you had to read, uh, read the Bible every day, and they had a book that you had to track in. And you had to memorize all these verses. I think we had to memorize 40 verses. And it wasn't just one short verse. They were like three or four verses per card. So you had to memorize all these verses. You had to read Christian and missionary biographies. And I found those quite challenging. Never had read anything like that before. And, you know, we just had to lead by example. That's what they wanted us to do. So you know what happened when you do that stuff? You grow. You grow. And we began really growing. And... uh, they made Stan the associate and youth pastor during that time. And, you know, we were growing, but we were not perfect. Still not perfect. And um, I remember our pastor's wife at the time. I love Teresa. She was a New Yorker, and she said things straight. And she said, Deanna, you're a negative person. And I'm like, what? Me? <laughs> Sometimes we're not very self-aware. And I thought, you know what? I, I, that was such a shock to me. I thought, I, how can I be, I mean, you know, and, and I knew she was right. You know when people are right. Uh, most people don't have the, uh, the oomph to say it <laughs> to your face, but I knew she was right. And I thought, well, I don't want to be thought of as a negative person. I'd recently read a poem that said, you know, how she lived her dash. It was talking about a woman that, you know, at the end of her life, you know, on her tombstone was the date she was born and the date she died, and there was a dash in between those two numbers. And, you know, it talked about how she lived her dash. You know, that dash doesn't tell us a whole lot when we see a tombstone. But, and I thought, you know, I don't want people to remember me. I want to live my dash in a way that people say, she wasn't so bad. You know, isn't that, you know, enough? You know, not so bad. And I thought, well, I need to be able to turn this around. So how can I do that? I knew enough at the time to know that the book of Philippians is known as the book of joy. And the the simple um, acronym is JOY stands for Jesus, Others, and You. And I thought, well, that's surely going to have the answers that I need. And it wasn't until I got to Philippians 4 that I found the formula that I needed to turn that negative um, spirit and mindset around. Philippians 4 says this. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, if you're trying to follow me, but... It says in Philippians 4, Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And then it goes on to say, keep putting into practice the things that you have learned. But I thought, well, there it is. There's the formula. So I need to rejoice. I need to not be anxious. I need to pray instead of being anxious. I need to be thankful. I need to ask God for the things that I need. And he promises peace that passes logic, even in the, the most crazy times. And then I had to run everything through my, all my negative thoughts through my filter and ask myself, okay, Deanna, is it true? Is what you're thinking about true? Is it honest? Is it just? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it of good report? Is there any virtue or praise in it? 
And you know what? That started to change how I viewed things around me. So much so that I was really annoying, and some people would call me Pollyanna. Now, how many of you know who Pollyanna is? I asked my daughter. Okay. <laughs> For those of you that did not raise your hands, Pollyanna was a, it was a children's book written in 1913 about an orphan whose approach to life was trying to be positive about everything and make the best of any circumstance. And a movie was made in the 1960s. I think Disney did that. And it's kind of the same thing. But it's, it's just like, you know, you turn everything, make everything positive. That, and uh, so that's Pollyanna. So Pollyanna, it's kind of a compliment, but it's kind of a, a dig too. Um, but you know what I would do is when I would find negative situations, like I had a good friend that had four kids all under the age of four. And she had heart problems too. And uh, her car was always breaking down. And I said, well, Robin, I said, let's think of 10 good things that, you know, is positive about your car breaking down all the time. I said, you're saving money on petrol. (laughs) And I said, and the kids aren't fighting in the back seat. When? (laughs) You know, and many things like that. So, you know, if if, sometimes 10 is a bit of a stretch, but I would do this to my kids too and my husband. And uh, and I'm sure it's quite annoying sometimes, but sometimes when things just seem so miserable, you just got to stop and turn it around. Say, okay, well, where's that other train track? Where's the good in this situation? There's always going to be something good we can be thankful for. Well, our family continued to grow. Um, Julia, our third child, was born. And I said, all right, that's it. I came from a family of three kids. I'm done. I don't want any more kids. I got my little girl because, you know, I thought my firstborn was going to be a girl that was back before you would know what you were having and did reveals and things like that. Um, And I had my little girl. and It's like, I'm done. Well, my older sister, the black sheep of the family, who was no longer a black sheep, was very spiritual. And and I was going to have a tubal done um, after that to make sure that we weren't having any more children. She said, you shouldn't do that. And she put all this guilt on me. She said, you can't surgically alter your body and stuff like that. She doesn't believe the same way now. It's a long time ago. And I thought, well, I don't want to do the wrong thing. And I knew right then and there that we will have another child (laughs) because that's just the way it worked. We thought about getting pregnant and we got pregnant. And um, (laughs) so um, two years to the day, our youngest daughter, Jill, was born. And, and I know it seems like, what does all this have to do with everything? But this child or this pregnancy did more to change my life than anything. And it's, it's still, and I'll try not to get teary, uh, did more. I had a perfectly normal pregnancy. There was a few concerns throughout it on my part. Um, but the doctor said, ah, it's fine. And I said, well, if he thinks it's fine, it must be fine. Well, it wasn't fine. When Jill was born... Uh, I went into congestive heart failure, and they didn't know why. In fact, they didn't even know it was congestive heart failure. They let me go home with a healthy baby, and within you know just a few hours, I was back in hospital running high fevers, and they tested me from everything from leukemia to lupus uh, to even AIDS because they're like, you know, we have no idea what's wrong with you. That called in an infectious disease specialist, having scans and all that, and I was just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. I couldn't lay flat because I had so much fluid build up in my heart. And it was so obvious. You look back and you think, how did they miss? It was congestive heart failure. It was so obvious. Um, But it was peripartum cardiomyopathy. And it was a tough way to go. And I remember uh, it was the fifth floor of the hospital in the town we were in. And looking out the window one day, and I'm thinking, you know, I saw the cars going by on on the street below. And I thought, man, I don't get to choose whether I live or die. Life goes on with or without us reality check. You know, you know these things, but it's like when it's right in your face. And 
the doctors figured out what was wrong. They put me on some medicine. And, you know, I can tell you to this day, my heart is in pretty good shape. They keep telling me, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Um, and I'm not even on any medicine to this day. God healed my heart. He really did. In, in more than one way. Because that lesson, learning that my life is not my own, really started to make a change, an even bigger change. I knew my life really did belong to God in a bigger way. And it made me wonder at the time, what is he going to ask us to do? Um, we were already serving him in the youth ministry and stuff. Uh, a few months later, I think Jill was probably, uh, she was a toddler at the time. Um, but Jill, that child that I never meant to have was nearly run over by a car. Um, she was crossing, the, she got out of my husband's arms. I had walked across the street. It was Christmas time and it was feeding the neighbor's uh, animals. And the uh, Jill just toddled after me, as toddlers do, and we lived on a curve, and a car came flying around that curve, and I was on one side of the street, and Stan was on the other, and all we saw was screeching tires, a thump, thump, and I just immediately started screaming, and I thought, you know, I can tell you for a second I know what it means to, to lose a child, because we thought, we both thought, from both perspectives, that she was gone. There was no way she would have survived um, that thing. And my first thought was, what are we going to do with the Christmas presents under the tree? And, uh, you know, it's funny, you, you never know what's going to happen in those moments. But obviously, God spared our daughter. You saw her, she's married now. And uh, it made me realize that that was my second big lesson. My children's lives are not my own, that they belong to God too. And those are the two lessons God really used in our life to make us open-handedly say, okay, God, we're not going to hold anything back. You've just shown us you could take our life. You could take our children's life. Our lives are yours. What do you want us to do? And that's when God began directing us to mission. And it was unexpected. Um, in fact, when God first started calling us, I, like, I liked, I, I have very close family. Um, I never wanted to be a missionary. I didn't even know how to be a missionary, even though we were in pastoral ministry. So we began this exploratory journey and realized how little we really did know about mission. And it took us two years with four kids in a minivan traveling. We were in 100 churches in that time, uh, sharing our story, telling everybody across the eastern side of America, Australia has no churches. You have to support us and send us. <laughs> a few times people challenged that. Are you sure? And it's like, oh, no, no. We, we were there. Somebody told us, and we trusted them. And what did we know? Um, but <laughs> despite that, God did get us our support. And, but I thought the whole time, this is just a test. He's just testing us. He just wants to see if we're really willing to do this and leave everything behind and go. And, and uh, it, long story short, obviously, uh, it was more than a test. Um, it was during that time. Our second son was about 10. We had some good friends in the church, our old church, that had uh, a, uh, their 10-year-old daughter. who was the same age as Grant. Her name was Danielle. Uh, had developed uh, tumors all up and down her spine. And we prayed and prayed and prayed for Danielle. But God took her at the age of 10. And, you know, used to, when things would happen in our family, and our life, my husband tends to be, his nickname back in the day was Armageddon, because it's like, you know, he sees all the bad that's coming, <laughs> and uh, can be a little bit negative, and when it's appropriate, he tells me. Um, but, you know, I used to tell him, well, you need to be thankful that your daughter doesn't have cancer. If nothing else, you know, we look at the Green family and they lost their daughter. It was the same age as our son. And I said, at least your daughter doesn't have cancer. And that worked for a long time. Um, 2001, we came here. We started working with our organization. Our organization was very dysfunctional. 
we did not fit because we obviously looked around and saw churches and said, what are you guys talking about? We had a very different mindset as far as how things should be done in ministry. We lasted for six years in that paradigm before, at the end of the day, long story short, we were asked to leave. They said, you know, you don't fit with us. And we knew we didn't fit with them. And they said, go home. Well, rather than go home, within 30 days, we were at a new church pastorate in Pennsylvania. Never lived in Pennsylvania before. It's a beautiful country. We're the Amish. We're two hours out of New York City. And it was just beautiful country. And that was a healing, a little bit of a healing time for us. But it was hard on our kids, as you can imagine. They were young teenagers, older teenagers. Our oldest son just started uni. And we, uh, we found out a month into this new church, and it was a great church. It really was. But there was fighting between the elders and the pastor. And they had called my husband in because they knew he was a good leader to run the senior pastor out. So we were the meat and the sandwich, and that was a really hard time. I think, God, what are you doing? We had such a hard time in Australia, and now we're in the middle of this. You know we need to heal. This is hard. But that's the place that God crossed our paths with SIM. And we, uh, we were there for two years. The kids did pretty well, despite the, uh, the sadness they felt in leaving Australia. We were confused because we'd become citizens, and we thought we'd come to Australia for life. God, what are you doing? We don't understand this. And... Um, when he asked, God brought us back to, to Australia, he brought us into mission leadership. It was the first time in our, mission, our ministry career that we weren't in a church pastorate, and that was really hard, a season of grieving for us. And our kids, uh, we came back to Australia. Jill was about 14, and, you know, everybody had a hard time with the grief and the change and stuff like that, they say don't even move teenagers. I speak into missionary lives all the time telling them, you know, we need to be careful, you know, your timing of coming and going and things like that because of the ramifications. Um, But Jill didn't fare so well. She developed an eating disorder. In fact, uh, we battled anorexia for about 15 months. Uh, That is probably the second hardest thing I've ever dealt with in my life. Anorexia is merciless. And it is hard. And I see a lot of that in the work that I do now. Uh, Missionary kids struggle with the grief and loss that they face. And and so eating disorders and self-harming behaviors and and addictions and stuff like that are often something that can surface in missionary families because of the the stress that they live under all the time. Well, we got Jill the help she needed. She was hospitalized just for two weeks, and she was on a refeeding program. She recovered greatly because she's a very compliant child. A lot of her anorexia wasn't about body image as much as it was about identity and fitting in and um, you know, just wanting to have control because there's a lot of control issues with anorexia. And um, just praising God that, that she recovered as well as she did and had regained her weight, and, and the behaviors were, were going away was during this time that Jill just seemed really depressed. And I thought, well, you know, I kept talking to her doctor, and I said, I think there's something else wrong. I think there's something else wrong. She said, no, no, no. You don't know what you're talking about. She just needs to eat more. And, and I said, she's gained all her weight back, and everything is going the right way. Um, are, you, are you sure? I just think there's something else wrong. She was having heart palpitations. And of course, with my heart history, I thought, well, you know, um, we, we should at least check her heart. No, no, no. She just needs to gain more weight finally threw my arms up and I took her to my GP and I said, listen, this other doctor over here, this specialist at the the children's hospital will not listen to me. I think there's something else wrong with my daughter. He said, we'll run some blood tests. So he took her bloods and we went to, I dropped her at school. She came home. She went to youth group that night. It was a Wednesday night. And at 9.30 that night, I got a call from the pathology lab that said, Mrs. Ritchie, 
Get your do- we can't get a hold of your doctor. Take your daughter to the emergency room right now. And, he, and they said, and you know, I'm in shock. And they, they said, give them these numbers. So I, I you know, wrote down these numbers, and they, numbers that didn't make a lot of sense to me. But they said, you know, that, tell the ED doctor that this is uh, what's going on. So, you know, we got her out of bed and rushed her into the children's hospital. Because I said, do we take her to where be mercy? Or, and they said, no, take her to the children's. She was 16 at the time. And that's when life, uh, the bottom started dropping out. Just a few weeks before that, six weeks at the most, life had begun settling. Jill was better from the anorexia. And um, we had, our second son was engaged. I started my master's study in member care. I, I was doing that through a, a college in England, so I'd have to travel to England for a few intensives and then come back and write papers and stuff. And all of that had just started, and this happened, and the bottom began to drop out. The doctor on the phone, this doctor that I'd argued with for such a long time, she said, Mrs. Ritchie, we got the results. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. She said, uh, we think that we got the blood results from the path lab, and it's either this disease or this disease, but we don't know for sure. We're going to have to let your daughter uh, bring her into hospital and do a bone marrow biopsy just so we can get a proper diagnosis. But they said, it's either leukemia or this other disease called PNH. And I thought, oh, okay. Never heard of PNH, wasn't too concerned about that one. But we'd had friends with children that had died of leukemia. Diagnosed, three weeks later, they were gone. And that's not always the story. In fact, we have good results with leukemia these days, but I'd known at least a few people that had died of leukemia. So you can imagine what was on my mind. But you know, it was the week of the Deb. We'd already bought the dress and the tiara and the gloves and the shoes and all these things. And I, I told the doctor, and I don't even know why on the phone that day, but I said, you know, I said, I know this may sound silly, but her Deb's this week. Can she go to her Deb? Because I thought, you know, this might be the last good thing that happens in our life. And, and we want to start, you know, on this positive thing. We've already made all this investment. And so we took her to the Deb. Um, and, you know, as we sat there, we had this big weight. Nobody else, everybody else was celebrating. We had this big weight on us knowing that she wasn't well. And uh, we didn't know what was wrong. We knew something was coming. And, and we thought, you know, is this going to be the only time we see our daughter in a white dress? They don't always wear white these days, so that doesn't always matter. But, you know, at this time, this, this was going through her mind. She went to the Deb. As soon as the Deb was over, she went to the hospital the next day for her bone marrow biopsy. They admitted her, and they did the test. And I remember they brought us into a room, and they said, uh, uh, I, we sat across from about six doctors, some of them I had never met before, I'm thinking, and, and the one doctor that would not listen to me for a good year and a half, um, said, okay, we've got the results back. And they said, it's this PNH. And PNH stands for paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. For those that know, it's very rare. It's considered an ultra-rare disease. It affects the red blood cells in such a way that it destroys them and the bone marrow with it. And so she had aplastic anemia as well. But I asked the doctors, I said, leukemia, PNH. And they said, leukemia would be a better diagnosis. <laughs> I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. Um, <laughs> because we know more about leukemia, because PNH is so rare, uh, and it's an acquired disease, it's not a genetic disease, it wasn't caused by anorexia or anything like that, it was just uh, bad luck, if you will, but uh, they can't tell you, they don't know enough about it to tell you how it happens, but it happened. Um, 
So we got her diagnosis, and we began the process of applying for grants to get the medicine she needed. The medicine she needed uh, is a drug called eclusimab. And because PNH is rare and eclusimab is not really used that often, it was uh, considered by Forbes magazine the most expensive drug in the world at a half a million dollar dose a year. Okay? We don't have that kind of money. <laughs> We're in ministry. <laughs> um, but, you know, through uh, a very diligent doctor who was only with us for just a short time, he wrote for the, the grants and stuff like that, and she was able to get the drug that she needed to help stay this disease that was ravaging her body. And she had to be sick enough to get it, and she was. And so our life looked like every two weeks she would go into the Royal Children's in the city, and she would get this dose of eclusimab. And it took a couple of hours, but it wasn't just the uh, eclusimab that she needed. Her bone marrow was not producing blood, so she had virtually no blood cells, no red blood cells, no platelets, and no immune system. So she was a bleeding wrist. She would bleed all the time, like she would get blood blisters in her mouth or her eyes, just anywhere. So she, we had to treat her with kid gloves. She couldn't do anything that might cause anything to bleed or bruise. And, of course, her immune system meant she got sick all the time. And besides that, because her body was destroying its red blood cells, she had to get two to four units of blood every two weeks. So we would go in early in the morning, we'd close the place down at night, and that was life for me and Jill. And the rest of our children and my husband were going about things on their own. Life still happens while um, when you're sick, and that was the reality for Jill. She was in and out of hospital um, on a regular basis. Uh, tests and surgeries and things like that. More bone marrow tests to see how the, the bone marrow was doing. And um, things weren't looking good. She just continued to get sick. And she was quite, you can imagine, a teenagers are hard on the best of times. But she really struggled being a teenager and going through all this stuff while her friends went on about life. I can tell you that my oldest son was not doing well at this time. He was, I was more concerned about him, if you can believe it, than I was about Jill because I was afraid he was a suicide risk. He was just so depressed and lonely and struggling in his job and struggling in uni, and he was just sad, and I knew that. And he's a quiet, strong one, uh, but I was concerned about him. Our other son, Grant... Um, who has always been a bit of a stem winder, if you've heard that expression. Ever since he was a little bitty, nothing changed. He was always the one that challenged me. If I said, Grant, that's the line, his toe was always over it. And then the rest of him in a quick flash. <laughs> and that was Grant. He, uh, we found out during this time that he was hooked on ice or methamphetamines. And he had a methamphetamine addiction. He's clean today. I can praise God for that. But boy, in the middle of all this, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Don't we have enough to deal with? And we couldn't really give him the help that he needed because my job was to keep my daughter alive. And, and I, I moved into hospital with her, and we lived in hospital for about six months in and out in that time. And I was still doing my master's studies, which was a good distraction. I can tell you it was a good thing that I had it at the time, although it was really tough. Um, but we were in hospital for Easter and the Good Friday appeal, and they were going to do an experimental treatment. They said this treatment might work, it might stay the, the disease that she has and, and everything, so they tried it, and they took her near, near death's door, really. Her blood pressure was plummeting, and her fevers were high, and that was just part of the process of trying this drug to, to reboot her system, if you will. And long story short, it didn't work. It didn't work. Um, we made it through that season, and... Uh, 
And, you know, I thought, well, we've got this. You know, she gets her treatments, she gets her blood and stuff like that. And the, day, the nurse in day med said, you know, Mrs. Ritchie, you know it can't keep going like this. And I didn't know what he meant at the time. Looking back, I know what he meant now. But basically, she was dying. She was dying, and the, the treatments they were giving her weren't working, and we needed something radical. So radical became um, a bone marrow transplant. And we had been told early on that that was a last-case scenario because they are so dangerous, and it was something that you know we were really fearful of. Um, she continued to have really odd things happen, lots of pain. She she would just she was just suffering so much, and they did many tests. Yeah, I think I know every room in the Royal Children's. It became home for us for quite some time. And the reality is, uh, we knew we were facing a bone marrow transplant. Jill's immune system was so weak that even to go out in the hospital, she had to wear a mask. She'd gotten so weak that she couldn't hardly walk, so I would push her in the wheelchair with her poles and stuff just to get out of the room because uh, every time we'd uh, leave the hospital and come back, they would put us in a different place. And she had grown weaker and stuff like that. If you'll notice, her hair's cut a little bit shorter there. She started out with long hair. And in anticipation of the chemotherapy treatment that she would have to have to, to get the bone marrow transplant, basically they have to, to kill off all existing bone marrow and put new clean marrow in in order for them to survive. So knowing that she would probably lose her hair, we started cutting it off to make that process a little bit less um, invasive for her. Transplant week came, and she had to go through a lot of things for conditioning. That's a lot of IV pumps, don't you think? She was being pumped full of all sorts of different things at the time to get her body ready to receive that marrow. Up until then, we hadn't known if we'd had a match until the doctors brought us in and they said, we have a match. They tested all four of our kids and, and, um, because a sibling is the most likely match. And, um, you know, I had prayed through that time, Lord, please let it be Garrett. I didn't want it to be Grant because I didn't know what was in his blood. He was, you know, doing so many drugs at the time. And, and our other daughter, Julia, couldn't even look at a, bone, or a blood transfusion and didn't love pain. Who does? And I thought, Julia, that would be a lot for her to ask. But she wanted to be her sister's savior, if you will, in this case. Uh, but it was Garrett. And when the doctor said, your match is Garrett, I just wept. I thought, thank you, Lord. Garrett needed that boost to his own sense of purpose and... and and everything. And, and transplant day, the only ones that were allowed in the room was our son Garrett, who had spent a few hours across at the Royal Melbourne having his bone marrow harvested, Jill and then my husband and myself. And you know what? There's no guarantees with a bone marrow transplant. The, the graft can fail. In other words, the body can reject it to the point that it, it doesn't, you know, that death is imminent. And it can cause um, a lot of complications. One is graft versus host, where the, uh, the new immune system rejects the body that it's been transplanted into. So we didn't know. We knew the transplant was happening, but we didn't know what lay ahead. And two weeks after the transplant, Jill's hair began to fall out. That was quite traumatic for a now 17-year-old. And, you know, our son Grant was was coming around and visiting. Days in the hospital were long because she was in isolation. She wasn't allowed to leave the room at all. Anybody that came to see her usually had to be gowned, had to be well, that thing, those kind of things. And we, um, we got through that season, and she did remarkably well. Blood test every day to check and see, is it growing? Is it growing? Is it growing? And slowly, very slowly, it started to grow. Enough that they let us go home. And I tell you what, that was a scary day. Um, 
she was weak, and you could just tell. And I thought, you know, at least in hospital, the doctors are here and the nurses are here, and they know what to do. And now I was feeling the weight of this is going to be on my shoulders. And the nurses said to us, you'll be back. She, they said, everybody that, you know, has this ends up back in hospital. They get sick and stuff like that. I can tell you, except for appointments to follow through with tests, we are at, at doctor's appointments every two or, th- two or three times a week, every week, uh, to see this specialist or that. She was never readmitted to the hospital. Praise God. Praise God for that. He did a miracle, and people literally all over the world were, were praying. In fact, I had people tell me, I'm praying that, my mom said, I'm praying that God's going to heal her. I just know he's going to heal her. And I said, Mom, God doesn't owe us that. I hope he does, but I'd seen him take other children and stuff like that from good Christian families, and I thought, God doesn't owe us that. He will be glorified in whatever he does, but he doesn't owe us that. And, you know, going through those late nights at the hospital, watching Jill um, writhe in pain and sleep restlessly, I thought, you know, God, I was trying to be that Pollyanna and think about, you know, what is good about this situation. And I thought, well, you know, God, if you'd taken me when my heart was failing, I would have never even seen Jill grow up. You gave me my life back, and I was thankful for that. I was thankful for the 17 years that he gave us, that he didn't, that car didn't run over her. And I thought, well, you know, at the very least, we have those 17 years. And I was trying to make the best of a a difficult situation. And and it did bring a great sense of peace. The hospital was good. They fitted Jill with a wig, uh, but she couldn't be around people. Um, We tried to go to the mall one time wearing a mask, and it's quite intimidating. We were in and out. It's very anxious for her at the time. She had no immune system because it was still growing. She had lost all her childhood immunizations. Those had to be readministered gradually. So we would go visit kangaroos and things like that because they would be, stay away from us and, and there were no people and <laughs> things like that. She and I spent a lot of time together to pass the time. She had to be in isolation for 80 days. She couldn't be around other people. The 80th day of her isolation when she was free to go back and be in the public, her immune system was growing, things like that, was the day of her valedictory. We had ordered her dress online. Julia and I had gone and bought the shoes for her, sent pictures and said, what do you think of these shoes and stuff like that? Because she couldn't go shopping herself. You can see she's quite thin there uh, because chemotherapy had done a number on on her body. And and her school honored her in such a way that the young gentleman lined the stairs and gave her a flower each. You can imagine mom and dad were just tearful. But it was a happy, sad time (laughs) because um, even though she walked on her valedictory... She hadn't finished year 12. We talked about it when she was in hospital, and the doctor said, absolutely, positively not. She will not be in any shape to do year 12. And so she was not able to do year 12 and finish with her class. She had to finish a year later, and gosh, that was hard. In fact, many days she said, I can't do it, Mom. I don't want to do it. Why should I even finish? And I said, just keep going, Jill. Just keep going. And, and she did. Um, she did finish a year later. She didn't walk with the other class because that's not my class, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, and she didn't stop there either. Um, she had a long way to go. Um, she's wearing a wig in that valedictory picture because she still didn't have any hair. She was so thin. She said, I feel like a 14-year-old boy. Nobody is ever going to want me. And as a mom, I had to encourage her that it'll be okay. Julia uh, was planning her wedding. And, you know, it's hard to plan a wedding from a hospital. Uh, but we, we did it, and Julia did a lot of that work herself. And our goal was for Jill to have enough, be well enough, and to have enough hair to walk down the aisle and be the maid of honor without having to wear a wig. God allowed us to have that. What a special moment. I don't know if Jill was more the, uh, the person of honor that day or Julia, 
but it was a real turning point for our family that things were looking up. We still had a long way to go, and uh, things, it, it taught us to learn to celebrate what's right in front of us. When you go through stuff, I think that's a really important thing. We've got to look for things to celebrate. The hospital was good. Make-A-Wish Foundation granted Jill's wish. It was originally to meet a famous star that they couldn't get a hold of, which is, you know, just an act of God, because um, in the end, she said, well, I'll take a puppy. That was a long process, but it was a symbol that Jill was getting healthy enough to look after a dog on her own. She named this dog Dorothy, the name Dorothy. Many of you may know this, but it means gift from God. She looked at this puppy as a gift from God and, and her baby because there's a real likelihood that Jill uh, was not able to have children. We did everything we could to pr- preserve her fertility, but they said chemotherapy at that age, it's not very likely that she'll be able to have children. We talked about uh, Julius. Julius said, you know, I'll help her, I'll surrogate for her and stuff like that. And, and uh, so we looked for ways around that. But, you know, the reality was we didn't know, they didn't know, and things weren't looking very good in that sense. We learned to celebrate bone marrow uh, transplant anniversaries <laughs> in creative ways. <laughs> little, little inside into our family's humor, but um, our daughter, uh, we would celebrate because it's like, you know, the nurses said in the hospital, they said, a lot of people look at this as like being born again. And I thought, well, you, your definition of born again and ours is probably a bit different. But they said, you know, yeah, they celebrate it just like it's a birthday. So we celebrated the first five years. And, and I told Jill last year, we're in our sixth year post-transplant. I said, I think it's time to stop celebrating. I said, we know we have many more things to celebrate, but you made it to the five-year mark. And then we even celebrated dog birthdays. You celebrate what you can in life, you know. So we took Dottie to, the, um, to the McDonald's and got her an ice cream cone. And we did all the things that you do. Yeah. So, but you know what? I can tell you all that. After all this stuff, this is what Deanna felt like. I felt uh, it was a desert season in my life. In fact, um, I had, I think God gives us enough strength to get through our trial periods. Because I can tell you, I look back at that and I'm thinking, I don't know how I did it. But it was just God's strength and the prayers of people. People prayed us through it. But the road to recovery was a lot harder than I expected. I probably was suffering through some PTSD, having gone through so much. I mean, the moves and ministry and the ministry challenges we'd had, a son on meth, a daughter who'd gone through anorexia. We had some other family concerns that had happened, and then we went through this big thing. And so by the time it was all over, I was pretty drained. And, you know, just even trying to keep Jill supported and, and get her through what happened to her and keep her going. Um, and I started to question, man, what is it all about even? We've been in ministry. We didn't hold anything back from God. We opened our hands and said, God, you can have our kids, you can have our life, you can, we'll, you can have our house and all our belongings, and we'll go to another country, and we'll do it hard and leave the things we love behind for you in ministry. We've been doing ministry for so long. Um, I even homeschooled my kids for 10 years through that process to make the transitions easier. And I thought, you know, even homeschooling didn't protect my kids from, you know, making good choices and not having eating disorders or not having drug addictions or not suffering from anxiety. But you know what? I thought, God, I keep being all in for you, and you keep sitting me on the bench in one way or the other. And I said, why am I doing this anymore? Why am I doing it? I've given you my A game. I don't have any more to give you. And I think that's what he wanted. I think that's what he wanted. I really, you know, we call these times a crisis of faith where we just get to a place in our faith that we're just wrestling with it. Is it worth it? You know, we put our expectations. I didn't realize at the time, but I had these expectations on God that if I served him, he would bless me 
and protect me from all these things. And I used to, been used to tell people, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. You know, and, and as I reflected upon that, as I grew in, in Christ, the center of God's will was a cross for our Savior. It's not always the safest place, but it's the best place. And we need to remember that when we're going through times. Two things God used to pull me out of this. You would think it would be the book of Job. Job went through more than most humans um, could ever go through. But it was the book of Jonah. I was reading in my quiet time because I still was tracking with the Lord, even though I was just wrestling with him. And my husband was watching this wrestling, and he said, you're scaring me, I don't know what to do. And I said, this isn't between you and me, this is between me and God, I'll work it out. And uh, the book of Jonah, and I read the book of Jonah, most of you would know that the book of Jonah, Jonah did what God wanted him to do, and he didn't like the outcomes, and he was sitting under the gourd pouting. And it was like God stuck his finger on me, he said, Deanna, you're Jonah, you're pouting, you don't like what I've done, and you're sitting there pouting, you need to trust me. The song Oceans by Hillsong had come out at that time, and there's a couple lines in that song that said, talked about God being sovereign, and that you've never failed me, you won't start now. And he also, it also says, you know, take me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. It was enough for God to call us to Australia, but, you know, was it enough for him to call us into a hospital room? It needed to be. And, and so God used those two things, and I began the journey uh, back into my faith again. A quick update. Jill graduated from nursing school. Um, after high school, she went on to uni. She graduated as a nurse. She wanted to be a pediatric nurse. Uh, she's actually a neuro nurse at the moment. And she also had her own wedding. She found the man of her dreams. And I had to tell their family, I said, you need to understand that Jill may not be able to have children. And his mom told me, he said, she said, that's okay. My son loves your daughter, and that's enough. And that was, uh, I was just so blessed by her attitude that way. And when um, the story keeps being written, this was Jill last year. (laughs) They tried, and within six weeks, without any intervention, God let them have a baby. It terrified me because I thought, oh no, what's this going to do to her body, and can she carry a baby, and will this cause her to have a... Uh, resurge of her, her sickness and stuff like that. She didn't have any problems until right at the end. She got a little bit of preeclampsia, and then she had a rough delivery. But uh, long story short, she gave birth to a healthy baby, and she's still with us today. This is my daughter, Julia. Julia looks happy there, don't you think? Julia had been trying to get pregnant herself for three years. Her last attempt at pregnancy landed her, in, in just the normal treatments of uh, Clomid and stuff like that, landed her in hospital with a pulmonary embolism. And made it really scary, because uh, I didn't realize at the time that, you know, how dangerous that really is, that it could have taken her from us. And we wondered how Julia would be with the knowledge that her sister, and all of Julia's friends around her were married and pregnant and stuff like that, and it just wasn't happening for her. In fact, she'd had a few chemical pregnancies, which are early pregnancies, that, that don't take. Um, so miscarriages, really, and that was devastating for her. And we thought, what is she going to do when she finds out her sister's pregnant? She has been so joyful to be an auntie and such a, a blessing. And her story is still being written, and she is still trying other things. And, and, you know, if God will, he will give them a child in his time. And that's where we have to trust him. But we can be happy for others, even in the midst of our sorrow. God is good. And then, you know, we, 
That's our, I had to put Hattie in here. This was this past week. And sometimes my husband has to remind me, Deanna, because Jill asked me to babysit and stuff like that. I'm so busy these days. And it's like, I don't have time for this. And Jill needs to be taken here or there because she doesn't have a car. And I don't have time for this. He said, honey, she's still with us. And I said, you're right. I needed to hear that. Well, um, I'm wrapping up. Our family motto, my husband and I um, uh, adopted this. We saw it in a somewhere, and, and it really meant a lot to us. To us, A smooth sea never make, made a skilled sailor. God uses the rough things in our life, but the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That's become our family motto, because finding joy in the midst of challenges of this life is hard. The Bible tells us that we live in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. It also tells us that God loved us so much that he didn't want to leave us in that state, so he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty, the price that we couldn't pay ourselves, that required him to lay down his own life for our sins and take it up again by his own power, rising in victory over the grave so that we can have hope. And all we have to do is place our trust in him and what he's done for us. And then all of our problems will be solved. I'm just kidding. (laughs) We still live in a sin, fallen and cursed world, and it's tough sometimes. But Romans reminds us of this, that there's purpose in that. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead us to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. We know in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. He produces that in our life. You know, the symbol for this, I I picked up along the way, there's a symbol for this, this Ladies' Day, and it's sunflowers. So I thought, I'm going to look up sunflowers. Has any of you ever grown them? Yeah, okay. So some of you would know what happens with a sunflower. This is what we normally think of that they look like. There's lots of varieties. They're named because they look like the sun. They're found around the world. They typically go and grow in summer or early autumn, peaking in midsummer. During the growth, sunflowers tilt during the day to face the sun, but they stop doing that once they begin blooming. By the time they are mature, sunflowers generally face east. I thought that was interesting. The growth of a sunflower strictly depends on its genetic makeup and background. Additionally, the season it is planted in will have effects on its development. We usually think of them as these bright, beautiful, cheerful flowers. But you know when sunflowers are mature, this is what they look like. They're dried out, and their heads are drooping, but this is their most fruitful season of all. You know, sunflowers have many health benefits. They're they're considered um, uh, rich in B-complex vitamins, which are essential for a healthy nervous system, and a host of other vitamins and minerals. They feed uh, animals and people alike, and the birds. And they have um, vitamin E and selenium, which are antioxidants which protect against free radicals. They're so valuable at that dirty, dried-up, stage. And I think we're kind of like this. We have seasons of beauty and growth, full of hope and promise and ideals. All the seasons of life pass. Our heads may droop. We feel dry and not nearly as beautiful as we once were. And yet, often this is where God can use us the most, bowing our heads in humility. 
releasing our plans and hopes and dreams into his hands. He uses our hurts and life lessons in fruitful ways to help others. There is nothing more beautiful than a life surrendered into the hands of a loving father. This is where the secret of our joy lies. The writer of Psalm reminds us, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. We can have this hope and this joy as we look to him. So thank you ladies so much for listening. I hope it was an encouragement to you.